Good morning, Providence. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, how are you guys doing this morning? Great. You're staying awake, right? Hey, so I want to stir your excitement for this passage a little bit as we get started, uh, as we're going to study in Mark chapter 13 and read to you one of some, uh, some of what some of the smartest people, the scholars in the world, have said about this passage in Mark chapter 13. William Lane, a scholar, a commentator, writes, In the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic. I read someone else, another scholar, who said, This is the most difficult passage to interpret in Mark, and one of the most difficult to interpret in the entire New Testament. Andrew is the one who makes the preaching schedule, and he gave me this passage. Thanks a lot for hooking me up, man. I appreciate that. If your house gets egged this week, I have no idea who it was. So, many people have looked at this chapter and have seen uh, or heard the the verses that that Scott read before. And even before this, there's a section, if you scroll back, there's this destruction and wars, and there's a thing called the abomination of desolation. And many people have looked at this, and they have tried to figure out when is this going to happen, and what is it going to look like? Can we predict the end? And one group of people were sure they could do it. So back in October of 1992, there was a church called Dami Mission located in Seoul, South Korea. Their church, along with about 20,000 other Christians in South Korea, had looked at passages in the Bible like this one and about the second coming of Jesus, and they had done calculations and studies and all sorts of things until they figured out, and they were absolutely sure that at midnight on October 29th of 1992, Seoul, Korea time, That Jesus was going to come back. And so these members sold their homes. They quit their jobs. Some of them abandoned their families. No joke. Some of them even got abortions. or, Or people said to prepare for this ride with Jesus to heaven. They had thought they had figured it out. On that night before, on October 28th, they piled into the church building, about a thousand of them, as a matter of fact, and just waited for the hours and minutes leading up to, uh, to midnight. And meanwhile, out on the streets, uh, there were 1,500 riot police that gathered around them. There were 200 detectives, along with 100 journalists who were waiting outside on the street just to kind of see what was going to happen. And believe it or not, midnight came and passed and nothing happened. And a few minutes passed and it got to be 12.10 a.m., 10 minutes after they were sure Jesus was coming back and uh, a young teenage boy uh, reached his head out the third story window to the thousands of people below and he yelled, nothing's happening! as if they hadn't already figured that out. Meanwhile, police and ambulance and medical professionals, uh, they waited outside to keep disaster from happening, to prevent suicides from happening, all sorts of stuff. And slowly, they ushered these people out of the building to live another day. I would say they ushered them home, but many of them sold their homes and they had nothing left. What you believe about the end drastically changes how you live in the present. 
These people were convinced that Jesus was coming back on October 29th, 1992. So much so that they sold everything. Some of them burned all their furniture. Some of them dressed themselves in white to be ready for this momentous momentous occasion. What you think about then changes how you live now. But you've got to get then right. These people are a great example of getting then wrong. But if you get true, or if you get it true, what's right about the end, then you can live this day in light of that day. I'm going to say that a lot this morning. The goal from this passage this morning is to live this day in light of that day. I love what Pastor Jeff Perswell commented about this text. He said, said, our biggest problem with this chapter is how we approach it. We approach it for what it is not meant to tell us and ignore what it is meant to tell us. We speculate about the future, but it rather equips us to live in the present. And so instead of looking at this and other passages maybe like this and trying to unlock some code to the end times like it's the movie National Treasure or something like that, uh, we want to live out this call to live in this day, in light of that day. So my aim this morning is to kind of unravel some of the the confusing, kind of convoluted prophecies we find in this passage, and steer you clear from predicting an apocalypse, okay? Don't do that, that's not a good idea, But, but instead to instill confidence in you that it is true that Jesus is coming back one day, and in light of that, be vigilant and faithful in living as disciples here And now, that's what we're going to talk about today. And so first, this passage is going to be split up into kind of three sections. First, we're going to talk about uh, the, the suffering that it predicts here. We're going to talk about suffering, and then we're going to talk about the hope for that day. And then we're going to talk about the faithfulness, the vigilance of getting from this suffering into that Hope. And so we're going to start uh, actually in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. This is before where um, this is kind of the ramp up or the setting to what Scott was reading us today. I'm going to read the first couple verses so you know where this passage was coming from. So in verse 1, it says, And as he came out of the temple, Jesus, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left hear one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, the temple in Jerusalem that they're looking at is described as being magnificent. It's this architectural wonder. They were sitting on the Mount of Olives, kind of opposite this, looking down over the city of Jerusalem, and and the temple would have dominated a large part of the landscape and a huge corner of the city as they were looking on to this temple. And as they were talking, Jesus, after the disciples commented about how great it looked, he comes back, did you catch us? He comes back and he said, you know what? You see that great, huge, gigantic, amazing structure there? It's going to fall to the ground. It's going to go down. This, this thing that was the centerpiece of Jewish life was going to be completely destroyed. Undoubtedly, this probably shook them up a little bit. Then Peter, James, Andrew, and John... 
these two sets of brothers that were talking to Jesus. These are the same four disciples that were the first four disciples to get invited and to follow Jesus at the beginning of Mark. These disciples, they follow up and they say, wait, when is this going to happen? Like, what, what's going to, when will this ta- temple be taken out? How is this going to take place? And so this is the setting for all of the following prophecy that comes out. And Jesus takes this whole chapter. He says, all of this following, not so we will be able to predict the future and figure out all of the ins and outs of what might come at the end. But he says this to pastorally care for these guys' soul because he knows the temple destruction is coming and people are going to suffer and it's going to get bad even for these four men who he was talking to here. And Jesus goes on to say, these are from some of the verses earlier in the chapter that we didn't read. He said, during this time of great suffering and tribulation, he said, many will come in my name trying to lead you astray. There will be fake messiahs that come to try to get you to follow them, to get away from the suffering. He said, there will be wars. It's going to be nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It's going to be crazy. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. It is not going to be good. And he even says in verse 9, you can see it says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Then skip ahead to verse 11. It says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. It goes on the next section to describe this abomination of desolation. It is as bad as it sounds. It it describes this great destruction, this great defacing of what God had desired when awful things in the temple would happen, when a figure who opposes Jesus, opposes all things toward God, is going to ruin things and bring about great chaos. And Jesus' encouragement during this time is, he he says in that section, hey, you're just going to have to forget everything and flee. All this ominous, awful prophecy that Jesus was talking about. You know what? This actually happened approximately 37 years after this was said, Roman Emperor Titus, not the Titus from the epistle in the Bible, but Roman Emperor Titus, he came in and he conquered the city of Jerusalem, destroying everything. Uh, there's a, a rumor that said one of the soldiers in his army uh, lit fire to the temple. At first it said that Titus wasn't sure he was going to destroy the temple, but once it would, was kind of burned, he said, okay, let's just, let's just lower this thing to the ground. Let's take this thing out. We're going to completely destroy this temple that was the centerpiece of Jewish existence. Uh, uh, the historian Josephus records that in this time 1.1 million Jews died and he approximated that maybe only 97,000 survived. There was an earthquake, there were wars, and it was said that they crucified so many Jews in this day that they actually ran out of wood. Famine and starvation were so prevalent that there were reports that there was cannibalism going on with parents and children. This is... Intense suffering. You remember what Jesus has been saying to the disciples leading up to this over the past couple chapters? 
He said, I'm going to suffer, and you're going to have to suffer too. I'm going to need you to pick up your cross and to follow me. This whole, this whole thing is going to cost me my life, and it's going to cost you your life as well. Think about the four guys that Jesus is talking to in this story, in their fate, these four disciples. John, who was said to be boiled in oil and then eventually exiled to the island of Patmos, where he lived by himself all alone until the day that he died. James, his brother, was said to be beheaded. Andrew was said to be crucified. Peter, Andrew's brother, was crucified upside down. You think these guys needed a message of hope and suffering? And think about the original readers of this book, Mark. Mark sent this book to the Christians in Rome, and they would have received this and been reading this maybe five to ten years before this temple destruction happened. They hadn't seen it yet, but their reality was pretty bad. These words were timely because they were enemies of Rome. They were imprisoned. These Christians were imprisoned. They were the victims of capital punishment. Some of the methods of capital punishment, I wouldn't even really want to say out loud from the stage, but there are reports even of of Christians for sport being caught in prison and then thrown into the Roman Colosseum with large animals to be seen. What would happen is they were killed by these animals, by spectators. This is all for sport. These words of Jesus would have been words that they would have hung on to. Don't be alarmed, verse 7. Be on your guard, verse 9. Don't be anxious, verse 11, when you're before authorities, because the Holy Spirit was going to speak. This was a call to courage for these disciples, because God was going to be with them. Do we have courage in suffering? You have a, a tendency to, to be courageous in suffering, or when chaos ensues, is it more so a moment of panic? I think a lot of times the opposite is true for us. Even when we see a, a war start around the world, unrest in the Middle East, it, it gets this sense of panic inside of us. When we see yet another school shooting, it, it kind of stirs us up into a panic. When a natural disaster comes, another hurricane destroys another Gulf Coast city in our country, and we kind of we panic. What about suffering on a personal level? How do you react to that when you're suffering through a, a physical sickness of some sort? When you seemingly can't escape from anxiety and depression? Or maybe when, when life just flat out seems like it's just too much. I feel like that was Carrie and I's life this weekend. It was, life was just too much. Kids are too crazy. Life is, is just weighing down. Or what about suffering in a spiritual sense? Suffering persecution. You may not think that this happens a whole lot, but I think it happens some. My first, I feel like, real taste of this, of seeing this firsthand, is when I got to go to to East Asia, to a closed country about 10 years ago. And persecution became a reality because as we sat there with one of the local church leaders, we went to lunch 
with this crew of people. <clears throat> we were talking um, across the lunch table, and every time that this local church leader would start talking about Jesus, he would start talking like this, and he would look around. Then when he talk about their ministry and their church, he would start to whisper and look around to make sure no one was listening to him. And it just hit me over the head. I was like, wow, their, their life is at stake. Like, their well-being is at stake. It was crazy. Now, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen in the next handful of years in the United States. But I do think God has called us to be bold. And I think in coming years, if we are boldly proclaiming the gospel like Jesus tells us to, if we are boldly standing for what Jesus stands for, If we are boldly putting our faith out there and calling sin, sin, and letting people know, hey, you're a sinner in need of grace, there's going to be some repercussions coming our way. And I think it'll probably get worse in years to come. You may lose some friends. You're for sure going to lose some Facebook friends. I don't know if that's persecution or not. But you may find yourself getting in trouble at work. You may find yourself losing your job at work. You may cause some rifts in your family. It may be uncomfortable for a while, but Jesus has called us, just like he called these disciples, to be bold with the gospel. And they had to walk into suffering because of it. And it is quite possible that if we are bold, we will have to walk into suffering because of that. Suffering is coming, but there is a call to courage. But when we see suffering on the news... When we experience suffering personally or when we experience spiritual persecution, the call from this, just like Gabe was saying earlier, is don't be scared. Don't be frightened, but be encouraged because God's plan is moving forward. He holds this all in his hands and he will hold us fast. And yes, we should be sad and grieved by suffering. And we can grieve with people and with family, but we can watch the news with this lens that Jesus has given us, that he is in control. He sustains. His mission is moving forward, and in the end, he wins. Amen? Now, some of you may be sitting there listening and then thinking at the same time, wait, wait, wait. I thought, this was about the, I thought this was about the end times. Like, what, what are we talking about the temple destruction for? Well, this is part of why this passage is so confusing. It's baffled scholars for years, which is why I'm telling you what it means, because obviously I'm smarter than all these people. No. <clears throat> that was an insincere amen. I have a feeling. No. But many people... Many scholars would say that this passage and all of these prophecies uh, are something that only happened at, at 780. It's all about the temple and what happened there. And there's other scholars that say, no, this is about an end time tribulation that happened right before, uh, right before Jesus is going to come back for his second coming. And then there's other people that say, this is kind of about both of those. <clears throat> and I can say this. This clearly prophesied about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and these things that it talked about actually, became, actually came true. It has to be about that, in part. But it seems 
when you look at this and you compare it to other scriptures, it seems as if it's also foreshadowing another destruction that's coming in the end that maybe you've read about in Revelation. Or as you go to 2 Thessalonians and you see a description of a man of lawlessness who's an antichrist figure who's going to come and destroy things and then Jesus is going to come back. It seems to be also referring to that. And I, for just a second, want to kind of go into a, a classroom mode to, to teach you a little bit about prophecy and kind of how prophecy works and maybe a way um, that could be clarifying for this. So... So when interpreting prophecy, many times it's important to understand that there can be more than one fulfillment to a specific prophecy. So in other words, it kind of comes in cycles. So, for example, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Isaiah, but in the book of Isaiah, the, pe- the Israelites, the people in the book of, or the, the people of Judah, they were taken into captivity in Babylon. And what God promises through the prophet Isaiah is that God is going to deliver them out of that. And so God, for example, in Isaiah 40, it says that he's going to bring comfort to his people and he's going to be a good shepherd that leads them out of there. Now I have this little handmade chart. This This will show you my graphic design skills, okay? Why are you laughing at this? No, no, I get it. So, so the idea is God promised them deliverance through comfort, through, 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 um, through uh, shepherding them out of it. And a lot of times people talk about prophecy and an idea of, of mountain peaks. Like when you look at the mountains, you see peaks of mountains and it looks like they're all a part of the same mountain range. It's like, oh, there's a peak there, a peak there, and a peak there. But when you actually get up close, you find out there are miles between these peaks, but they're all a part of the same thing, the same mountain range. And that's kind of the idea with this prophecy here. So you see the stick man who represents Israel or whoever you want it to represent. And at first you see the first mountain peak is a physical deliverance. And so it, for, from Isaiah to the people of Judah, the, the idea of comfort was they were going to actually physically, is the first mountain peak, they're going to physically be returned out of this period of exile, and they were going to be delivered physically. But it also looked forward to another time, as you see the second mountain peak, in Jesus, when Jesus would come, he would live, he would die, he would resurrect, and they would be comforted, they would be delivered in a spiritual sense from their sins, more than than just being physically taken out of exile, they were taken out of spiritual exile, and Jesus would fulfill that the second time. But we're still in this broken world and there is yet another, a third peak coming in in Jesus' second coming when he is going to come and deliver us and bring comfort and, and shepherd us once and for all in a way that we would be completely delivered out of exile and that we would be with him. You see how one prophecy could potentially have three cycles of fulfillment that get greater and greater as they go, but it all seems to kind of mesh into one as you're looking at one mountain peak. That's kind of the idea. You can take my perfect artwork down if you want to. But this passage, as we look at it, it seems to kind of have two peaks. One that kind of came true at the temple destruction, and one that potentially could come true at the end times. When the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians is around, and and ultimately uh, that will be summed up, both of these ultimately will be summed up by the second coming of Christ. 
Both point to the main thing that Jesus lands on in response to this suffering, both for us and for the disciples in these suffering times. And it points to live this day in light of that day. So I want to read this passage that Scott read to us in verse 24 of what Jesus says to us in light of our suffering. It says in verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Jesus, he juxtaposes this suffering that we will go through with with this future event, with this call, this challenge to dwell on, to think on, to look forward to this day when Jesus will come back. The call is to live this day in light of that day. And although that there's some ominous things that kind of get talked about or referenced here, the punch comes at the end that for those who are in Christ, who have been given life by Christ, when he comes back in that day, he will come in power and glory and he will come to gather us safely into his arms. And at that point, it will be over. Your pain, it's over. Your anxiety, it will be over. Your battle with depression, it will be over. Your fears, they will be over. Your shame, it will be over. Your insecurity, it will be over. Living with people who mistreat you, who bully you, who judge you, who manipulate you, who make fun of you. All of that will be over because you have a strong and mighty Savior who's coming to gather you in complete and total delivery. And his name is Jesus and he is coming like he promised. And it will be a glorious day. The best day. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know the details. We know it's not October 29th, 1992. But here's what we know. That all suffering will be over and we will be with him. And the profound but simple truth and the point of this whole passage is even amidst destruction then and now and in the future, even amidst pain and suffering uh, then and now and, and in the future, the point is that all of this destruction and pain is on a crash course with that day, with Jesus, when he will come back to gather his people and complete and total Relief will be ours and we will be with Jesus. And right now the call is to live this day in light of that day that's coming. Let me give you a a picture of this. So we have a handful of of people in our church who are engaged right now, right? And we have a whole slew of you who have gotten married in the last year. So this is fresh on your mind. I remember... um, when I got engaged a few years back, the day after we got engaged, one of the first things you do when you put a ring on it is you try to figure out a date on the calendar and you set that wedding day, right? 
For us, it was the very next day. We set that day. It was July 15th. And we were excited. We were a little bit crazy because we got engaged on March 26th. And so that means we only had three and a half months to figure out this whole engagement process. So it got a little bit crazy for us, but it worked out. And what we did in that three and a half month period is we did everything in light of that day. So when we went out on date nights, instead of having fun and and doing whatever we usually did, we were sitting down with to-do lists and making decisions, right? And instead of, of going out to see movies, we were going to Bed Bath & Beyond to look at our favorite forks, spoons, and knives to register. And instead of going shopping for ourselves, we were going shopping for the perfect salmon-colored bridesmaid dresses, which we did find, by the way. You see, Carrie is a doer, and so I actually had to make a rule uh, once a week, we'd get at least a two-hour chunk where we weren't allowed to talk about wedding planning. There's a little advice for you if you're engaged and you're a little bit crazy. But it was an exciting season. It was an anticipating season. It was a fun season, albeit a little bit stressful at times, a little bit overwhelming at times. It was this exciting season where we looked forward and we couldn't wait for that day, July 15th. And it changed everything about how we lived in this day, providence, that's the call in this passage. That that day should change this day. It should affect what we do. It should affect what we say. It should affect how we think. It should affect how we spend money, how we spend our time, who we invest in. And it should especially affect how we view and deal with suffering. That day is coming and it's going to be good news. So what exactly do we do? What's the call from this? Well, in, in verse 32, there's a, some verses here that kind of give us a little bit of a, a vague clue. It says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep, for you do not know when the time will come. This paragraph is a call to faithfulness. Because we don't know when that day is going to come. It explicitly says that in the beginning. As a matter of fact, it says at this point in time, Jesus didn't even know that hour. Now that's perplexed some people over the ages. It's confused some theologians over the ages and made them a little bit uneasy. But let's talk about the beauty of this, even this little statement. That Jesus knows that he is walking into the ultimate suffering in a couple of days. Or he will bear the sins, the weight of the sins of the world in just a few days. He will bear the wrath of the Father. And he is walking into this and he is saying, I trust the Father's will and I know it is okay. I'm going to walk forward into suffering even if I don't know every 
single answer there is to know at this point. I will walk through suffering, trusting the Father's will. And at this point, Jesus turns to us and he says, I invite you to do the same. To bear your cross through suffering, trusting the Father's divine will. He urges us to stay awake and be on guard. This is a call to to vigilantly and faithfully live out your discipleship walk. This day, this moment, even this afternoon when you go home, be faithful and vigilant in your discipleship. Now, here's the cool thing. I, I know a lot of you and I see this happening with a lot of you. I especially see some of the parents out there, stay-at-home moms especially. And sometimes, some days, it feels like life is a complete mess, right? It's this thankless job where where you're at home and, and there's kiddos climbing over you and they're crying and they're whining and they're screaming and they're crying some more and they're vomiting and they're doing things in their diaper, and it seems thankless and endless, right? But I gotta say that every diaper you change, every word of encouragement that you speak, every hug that you give, every meal that you put out in front of them, every time you engage your kid, you are staying awake, you're being faithful. You're faithfully investing and discipling for the glory of Jesus, just like Jesus was calling you to do. You're working for the glory of Jesus. And I want to say good work. Some of you out there right now, you are um, stuck in a place where you feel like you're in this boring, monotonous job, and you just wish, if anything, you could be done with it. You feel like it's dead end. It leaves you incredibly frustrated. But I want to say this, because I know some of you out there, even in the midst of this, you're showing up. And you're working hard. And you show up with a heart to engage your coworkers. And you try to encourage them. You try to show them the love of Jesus. You're looking for open doors to to be able to to, to speak into their life. And although it seems frustrating, you are being faithful to the process. And I want to say to you, good work. You're staying awake. You're being faithful and vigilant in your call at this point in your life. For some of you, you're in a life transition right now. Some of you are transitioning out of college Some of you are transitioning into being empty nesters. Some of you are transitioning uh, from one job to another job. Or maybe you're transitioning out of a relationship and you're waiting. You don't know what's coming next. And in this uncertainty, I see a lot of you opening up your Bibles. And you're hitting your knees in prayer. And you're seeking out counsel from people, trying to figure out what Jesus has for you. So even in the midst of this uncertainty, you're seeking after Jesus. You're saying, Jesus, lead me. I want to know what you have for me. And and if you're in that place, I want to say, man, well done. You're living this day in light of that day. These things may not be glamorous, but you're showing faithfulness. And that's what God is asking you to do in this day. 
Now, if you're here this morning and you're in a place where you've been kind of floundering spiritually, the, the call from, from this passage is to awaken, to allow yourself to be woken up by Jesus this morning, to live, truly live this day in light of that day. That day is coming and it will far overshadow anything in this life. And so the call is to, to turn back to Jesus this morning, to, to take all the shiny things that, that this world has to offer that you may have a tendency to run after and leave that and turn back to the one who gives true life, who gives eternal life. To lean into Jesus this morning and wake up. There's yet another group of people in here. Um, some of you who who are not Christians and you've never experienced a personal relationship with Jesus. And there's a call today for you to live this day in light of that day, because the truth is is that there is an offer out here on this day, and the offer is true forgiveness. Forgiveness from God for all of your sins. There is an offer of, of relationship with Jesus that he's inviting you into. That's how you can live in this day. By placing your trust in Jesus, saying, Jesus, I believe that you lived the perfect life. I believe that you died for my sins, and I believe that you rose from the dead, and you are God, and I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. That's the way that you can live this day in light of that day. If you've never trusted in Jesus, the invitation is open to trust him today so that you know when Jesus comes back on that day, as he promised, which will happen one day. It will be a real day. You will know that you will be one of the people gathered up. And you will be able to gather and experience the glory and the goodness and the wonder and the magnificence of Jesus on this day. Providence. Let's live this day in light of that day. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are good and gracious God, this world brings a lot of uh, things our way that are not the easiest things. They're not the happiest things all the time. Uh, But Jesus, ultimately, you have a plan, you have a mission, and you have saved us, and you have promised us so much that you would be with us. And ultimately, uh, God, would you help our hearts long for that day? Would you help help our hearts long for that day and help us to live faithfully this day in light of that day. Jesus, would you stir our affections for you and and move us to worship as uh, we take communion, as we sing out to you this morning. We thank you so much, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.